KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego Art Power is presenting Indian fusion band Red Bharat, mixing Indian bhangra rhythms, hip-hop, and funk music, March 23rd at the Epstein Family Amphitheater. Tickets and information about upcoming concerts and events at artpower.ucsd.edu. Governor Newsom delivers a hopeful State of the State address. Even as we grieve, let's allow ourselves to, to dream of brighter days ahead. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Hindman. This is KPBS Midday Edition. Mental health crisis teams will become a resource countywide. Mobile crisis response teams, non-law enforcement ones, we believe can, can make a significant positive impact on getting better outcomes for these individuals. Race-based medical assumptions may complicate treatment for COVID patients and some of this year's top picks at the San Diego Latino Film Festival. That's ahead on Midday Edition. KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego Osher Lifelong Learning Institute, hosting an open house to learn about the upcoming classes and seminars, member benefits, and meet the volunteer leadership team. Saturday, March 30th. Registration at extendedstudies.ucsd.edu slash O-L-L-I. Getting kids back to school, getting shots in arms, and getting the economy back on its feet. Those are the three priorities Governor Gavin Newsom outlined in his State of the State address last night. Newsom reviewed the past difficult year, the burdens Californians have suffered, and the mistakes that have been made. But the governor, who may be subject to a recall vote later this year, praised California's vaccine program as the most robust in the nation and predicted better days ahead. Even as we grieve, let's allow ourselves to to dream of brighter days ahead because we won't be defined by this moment. We'll be defined by what we do because of it. After all, we are California. We don't wait for someone else to show us the way forward. We go first and we go boldly. We led in gay rights, gun rights, and criminal justice reform. And now we lead on combating COVID. Joining me is reporter and producer for KQED's California Politics and Government Desk, Guy Marzarati. And Guy, welcome. Thanks so much for having me. Now, the venue for this State of the State speech was different, and it had a sort of layered symbolism. Tell us about it. That's right. So unlike most State of the State speeches, which are delivered in Sacramento in the assembly chambers, this was in Los Angeles at Dodger Stadium. And you really couldn't have picked more of a Hollywood setting, right? This was uh, layered with production values, uh, cameras flying over Newsom and over the stadium as he spoke, images projected over uh, on screens behind him. And it was both, I think, to display the fact that Dodger Stadium is being used as a mass vaccination site, but also really to drive home the scale of loss that we've had here in the state from the coronavirus. The, you know, roughly 54,000 deaths in the state are kind of equal to the capacity of the ballpark, which really put in perspective uh, kind of the scale of the loss. And I think really for Newsom um, was the reason him and his team chose to deliver this address in prime time in Los Angeles. And in an empty Dodgers stadium, too, for maximum effect. Now, what aspects of this long pandemic year did the governor highlight in his speech? He really focused on nailing the diagnosis. And as you put it up top uh, accurately, it was vaccine distribution, 
getting kids back in school and economic recovery. So the, the diagnosis is there that will obviously drive both the state's recovery um, and to a large extent Newsom's own political future. The message about getting the state's economy back on its feet may be easier than the governor had expected because of a windfall in state revenues. Tell us about that. Well, you're exactly right. I think this is where California's progressive tax structure really comes into play. Even though we've seen the unemployment rate rise in the state by roughly 5% over the last year, the state is has ended up with billions of dollars in unexpected revenue precisely because our state budget relies so much on the wealth of high earners, both in high income, capital gains. And as we've seen, you know, Silicon Valley, California tech companies really do well in the stock market in the last few in the last 12 months. Uh, that's reflected in these revenues that we have to spend on things like school reopening and the so-called Golden State stimulus. Now, this state of the state address was characterized by some as the governor's first campaign speech in the expected recall election. Does it look like that recall petition will qualify? Well, we'll know uh, in in the not too distant future, uh, uh, supporters of the recall campaign have a week to hand in those signatures. It is looking likely uh, at this point that they will have enough to force an election probably later this year. Um, and it's, you know, once the election is certified, it's anybody's bet. It will de- depend in, in large part on who gets into the campaign. Um, on face value, Newsom, obviously, as a Democrat, enjoys uh, a, a big registration advantage and would have to be considered the odds on favor to keep his job. It was notable, though, Maureen, last night, uh, you know, 3,600 words delivered by the governor. He did not mention the word recall once. He made passing mention to uh, what he called a partisan power grab, California naysayers. Um, But I think for the most part, he wanted to make this speech about the positive vision going forward for the state and not dwell on the fact that the pandemic has really reshaped his own political future. And reshaped the polling surrounding his approval rating. Uh, That's dropped from 64% last September to 46% early this year. Can we pinpoint the reasons for that? Well, I think it's kind of a a perfect storm of things for Newsom. Obviously, there's very few politicians that have come out smelling like roses from this pandemic. You look at the the economic toll, especially on low-income earners in California, the school closures, the small business closures, and then there are the unforced errors, right? The dinner he had at French Laundry gathering while he's you know telling Californians not to gather in groups, uh, the, the vast problems at the state's employment development department, both with fraud and delays in getting out benefits. Republicans, you know, really went after Newsom after last night's speech for not even mentioning EDD uh, in his state of the state address. And I think that might be in large part to Newsom thinking this is not something I'm you know likely to turn around in the next few months. So the best political strategy might be avoidance. Um, but he definitely got some criticism on that. Um, so I really think it's it's all of those factors that come into play when you're talking about why Newsom's approval rating has declined. That being said, there are polls that show the, the decline is, is less uh, to less of an extent than others. In speaking about the critical reaction to the speech, uh, there were some comments from hopefuls, gu- gubernatorial hopefuls, like former San Diego Mayor Kevin Faulkner. Here's what he had to say. Gavin Newsom has had almost unlimited emergency powers for a year. And for months, we gave him the benefit of the doubt. But time and time again, he has completely failed on delivering the basics. I believe there should be a high bar for a recall. 
Gavin Newsom has cleared it several times over. So what's next now for the governor? What challenges are ahead when it comes to the legislative session? Well, it was interesting. Unlike many state of the state addresses, this was not really focused on the five point plan, uh, a legislative agenda going forward. I think Newsom and the legislature have done a lot in just the last couple months since the legislature returned at the top of the year. Eviction protection legislation, the stimulus plan for you know economic relief, small business relief, and then this you know six point six billion dollar plan to incentivize school reopening. So I think in large part his agenda will be seeing those uh, initiatives through. That being said, the budget process uh, is coming up in the next couple of months. We'll see how Newsom is going to be uh, spending some of these increased uh, revenues that he has. Um, so that'll be something to watch over the summer. Okay, then I've been speaking with reporter Guy Maserati. He is reporter and producer for KQED's California Politics and Government Desk. Guy, thank you very much. My pleasure. People with mental illness are 16 times more likely to be killed in an encounter with police than those without mental illness. That jarring statistic has moved the county to look for better ways to help people experiencing a psychiatric crisis. Officials are now looking at the pros and cons of a pilot program that dispatches teams of behavioral health experts to some calls instead of law enforcement. County Board of Supervisors Chair Nathan Fletcher joins us with more on the mobile crisis response teams. Chairman Fletcher, welcome. Thank you for having me. So these teams do not include members of law enforcement like PERT, the psychiatric emergency response teams do. How do they differ from the county's PERT teams? It's just having a non-law enforcement response for what is a non-law enforcement situation. If an individual is not a danger to themselves or anyone else, then we want trained clinicians to respond. These are individuals uh, who have the training, the expertise, the compassion, the empathy, the time uh, to try and help these individuals that are in distress and get them on a a better path, a better way forward. And we're encouraged by the results of the pilot program. We're looking forward to taking this project countywide uh, beginning this summer. And tell me, what prompted the decision not to include law enforcement on these teams? Well, I think that there's been a long recognition that that mental health and, and drug treatment issues are some of the only issues that automatically get you a law enforcement response. If someone is having a heart attack, they don't respond to law enforcement. And 59,000 times a year, law enforcement responds to these calls. And in some instances, they need to go because there's a danger to the, the health and safety of, of San Diegans. But the, the vast majority of them, they don't need to. And the presence of law enforcement can escalate the situation. They're also not trained and equipped to, to be experts in mental health issues and drug treatment issues. So we want to get the right care to the right person at the right time. And that's where mobile crisis response teams, non-law enforcement ones, Uh, we believe can can make a significant positive impact on getting better outcomes for these individuals. Right. And so tell me, who specifically makes up the new mobile crisis response team? So it will be a series of of trained clinicians. Uh, It will be individuals that are equipped, uh, that that really know the ins and outs of how to talk someone down, how to de-escalate, how to build a relationship. Uh, They'll often be paired with someone in the team who has lived experience. There's tremendous value Uh, And someone who has lived experience, who has gone through some of these challenges with substance abuses or mental health illness, um, and and really begin to build that relationship with the individual in distress, 
and also be able to assess them about what is the proper treatment? How, how can we get them to the right place? Maybe it's a crisis stabilization unit. Maybe they need to go to the emergency room. Maybe they need a different level of care and treatment, but then begin the process of a continuum of care. And what we're trying to do is break the cycle of addiction, poverty, incarceration, emergency level care that repeats itself over and over and over. Let's get these folks into sustained, ongoing care that can improve their quality of life. San Diego County Behavioral Health Services Assistant Director Cecily Thornton-Stern spoke during a press conference on Monday about the program. Here's a clip from her. During the last fiscal year, PERP provided over 12,000 crisis contacts. Approximately one-third of those were to repeat individuals. Through the history of the PERT program, we've come to learn that not all situations require the presence of law enforcement. How will it uh, be decided then whether law enforcement, PERT, or these teams respond to a call? Well, ideally, the choice would be, do you send a mobile crisis response team or do you send law enforcement with a PERT, a psychiatric emergency response team embedded with them? And the ultimate decision is, is the individual in distress, are they a danger to themselves or someone else? And if the answer to that is yes, then it needs to be a law enforcement response, ideally with a PERT clinician. If they're not a danger to themselves and they're not a danger to anyone else, that's when you would send the mobile crisis response team. And what exactly will these teams do when they respond to a call? Well, that's where they'll begin the assessment. They'll begin talking to the individual, assessing what is going on in their life, and then be able to to determine what is the best option. There are a array of services for folks experiencing mental health issues or, or substance abuse issues. But traditionally with law enforcement, it is you either leave them where they are, you take them to jail, or you take them to the emergency room. Well, these mobile crisis response teams will have the expertise to be able to better assess them. Uh, In Third Avenue and Hillcrest, we're building our regional behavioral health hub. That'll be one site that'll have an array of services in that one location. That's an ideal place where teams can take them. Uh, But again, these teams will know best and be able to make the best assessment about how do we get this individual connected into ongoing services And how do we get them connected into ongoing case management and care coordination uh, to really try and break those vicious cycles uh, that we see over and over again? And and these mental health response teams have been responding to emergencies in North County since January. How is their effectiveness being measured? Well, we've seen tremendous success. I mean, we we have seen uh, exactly what it was designed to be. A story we recently shared was a family member. The family couldn't deal with them. Uh, It was really getting to a bad place. The mobile crisis response team got there, assessed the situation, worked with the individual, got him in a crisis stabilization unit, got him stable, got him on an outpatient system, uh, and and was able to help turn it around. The difference is the pilot program has not included diversions from 911. To make the system truly work, we need to be able to divert calls from 911. And so as we prepare to go countywide in the summer, Uh, We are working with multiple jurisdictions, city of San Diego, city of Chula Vista, national city, and the sheriff's department to design those protocols and processes so that 911 calls can be diverted to the mobile crisis response team uh, to try and and help get them to the right place. And and there's a shortage of mental health treatment options in the county. Will people referred by these mobile response crisis teams have priority for available services in the county? Well, this is a a huge issue. What we're doing on on mobile crisis response teams is one piece of about a dozen different pieces we're working on that all have to come together to truly uh, provide the promise of a better way for behavioral health services. And a key part of that is, as you rightly identify, is the shortage of of community care. These are 
or mental health or drug treatment services that are of lower acuity, lower level than an emergency room visit. And this is where we launched our Behavioral Health Impact Fund uh, just a year ago, $25 million to increase capacity for these. And so we simultaneously have to build out those levels of care that are below an emergency room type situation to make sure that we have a place to take folks. And there are currently more than 70 PERT teams, which include members of law enforcement, and and they aren't able to respond to all 911 calls involving a mental health emergency. How will this pilot program meet the demand for service? Well, I, I think there's there's going to be a, a great intersection between the mobile crisis response team and the PERT teams. Uh, ideally, anyone who's in mental distress would either get a mobile crisis response team or if it needs to be a law enforcement response, there's a fear of safety then it would be a law enforcement response who is paired with a PERT clinician. And so we think that this can really enhance and augment the ability of PERT uh, to be on scene when there needs to be a law enforcement response. And then when there doesn't need to be, then we have the mobile crisis response team who can take over. So we think this can increase the effectiveness uh, of our PERT teams. I've been speaking with County Board of Supervisors Chair Nathan Fletcher. Nathan Fletcher, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for allowing me to join you today. KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Cavanaugh. The COVID-19 pandemic has highlighted a number of racial health disparities across the nation. But as researchers and physicians continue to study the severe effects of COVID-19 on the body, a new report from UC San Diego Health suggests that long-standing tests used to determine lung capacity are actually rife with archaic and, in some cases, racist components that could lead to a misdiagnosis in patients of color. Joining me today are two of the researchers on that report, Dr. Amy Nan and Dr. Atul Malhotra. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Thank you. Dr. Nan, I'll start with you. Certain medical tests for determining lung capacity have come under scrutiny after the U.S. Food and Drug Administration determined that these tests have limited utility among people of color. How did the FDA come to make that assessment? So limited utility is probably in reference to the pulse oximetry tests that you're referring to. And those are... um, tools that are designed to read blood flow through the skin and darker skin color actually can't be read through as easily as lighter skin color. And so it turns out that those pulse oximetry readers just can't read blood flow as well with darker skin and work less well than with people of darker skin color. And let me ask you this, another of those lung capacity tests, uh, spirometers, can provide much more accurate results. However, this kind of test is used with a race-based modification that has racist origins. How did this come to be? The spirometer is the one that we wrote about in our recent article, and that is a tool that measures lung capacity. And so in the spirometry measurement, it actually is corrected for automatically in most spirometers to adjust black lung function 10 to 15% higher because the assumption is that black lungs 
uh, have 10 to 15% lower capacity than white lungs. And this is based on uh, really old historical data dating all the way back to Thomas Jefferson, um, where he assumed and um, reported that black lungs were less, uh, had lower capacity than white lungs. And so this data has been shown over and over through the years that there is lower lung capacity at a population level. And so they've built these corrections into the tools that we use to measure lung capacity. But the problem is we don't actually know why there's lower lung capacity in black populations and it's assumed to be normal. And so we adjust it leading to potential underdiagnosis among black people if their lung capacity is lower. But it could be an environmental factor that's driving this difference and not a genetic factor. And the assumption is that they are genetically different and that's why they, they use a different normal standard for black lungs and white lungs. Dr. Malhotra, how often do you think that leads to misdiagnosis? You know, we really don't know. That's a study we're doing now where we're collecting data in actual survivors of COVID to see how many of them are in the normal or abnormal range. These uh, assumptions about what's normal, as Dr. Nan said, are based on historical assumptions that really aren't well validated with scientific data. So we're now looking at some African-American survivors of COVID to see how many of them are have these adjustments. And if somebody is at 70% of normal and that is adjusted up to, to put them into the normal range, we might not give them appropriate treatment because we'd say they're normal inappropriately. And Dr. Malhotra, because COVID-19 affects lung capacity, we've seen an increase in the use of spirometry tests. Uh, how have these so-called race modifications used in these kinds of tests exacerbated existing racial health disparities in America? Yeah, so it's something that not all of us are aware of. As a lung doctor, we use spirometry all the time to assess lung capacity. We have people blow into a device and measure how much volume or flow comes out of their lung. And what's normal or abnormal sort of depends on the eyes of the beholder sometimes. What we end up doing is, is saying what, it is, what the value is as a percent of predicted. But the predicted is based on these historical assumptions, which in some cases are flawed. And Dr. Nan, this research indicates there's no major genetic marker, as you mentioned, that can explain racial differences in lung function. How do you hope this finding will highlight racism in the field of health? That's right. There hasn't been any genetic study that explains racial differences in lung function with any particular genetic marker. So I think the future of this research really should focus on what kind of environmental exposures might also be contributing to racial differences in lung function. Factors such as air pollution, smoke exposure, intrauterine growth restriction, all of these things over the life course can affect lung function. And so I think a focus on these factors in research and trying to get to the bottom of what's actually contributing to lung function differences without just assuming they're genetic is, is the next step in research. And Dr. Malhotra, is it possible that doctors could be missing or looking past critical diagnosis uh, in people of color due to these flawed testing methods? Yeah, it's not just possible, it's actually likely because the normal values I get when I do one of these tests are adjusted in ways that are not accurate. To take an extreme example, if there was a group of people that smoked a lot of cigarettes, let's say smoked three packs a day for 20 years, just to make a, a point. If you adjust if that and said that's normal, then nobody would have emphysema or smoking related disease because you'd say that's normal. And that's obviously inappropriate. As Dr. Nan is emphasizing, understanding why the lung function is a certain way is important. If they're genetic and environmental and other factors coming into play, it's important that doctors recognize that and say, what's from COVID, what's some other factors? And then 
try and treat accordingly. What will it take uh, to change the existing practice to make the measurements more equitable and accurate for everyone who's tested? I think the first step is raising awareness. Uh, even though I'm a, a lung uh, physician, I can tell you other lung doctors don't necessarily recognize where those factors came from. And the truth be told, I, I wasn't fully aware of the, the Thomas Jefferson thing about inferior black lungs until Dr. Nan brought that to my attention. So even though that sounds absurd, that was uh, the dogma that we weren't aware of. So the first step is raising awareness. The next step is added research. And so looking at what happens to different people of different races, different ethnicities as they survive COVID is an important next step. If a Caucasian person blew out of their lungs three and a half liters and an African-American blew out of their lungs three liters, there's a difference in the volume that they're blowing out of their lung. If you make an adjustment saying, well, it's normal for them, then you'll end up concluding that everybody's normal. But the fact that their volumes are different or their airflows are different may be because they have disease and it's not something you want to adjust for. And uh, Dr. Nan, you're quoted as saying that body proportion, socioeconomic status and occupational hazards impact lung capacity and, and not necessarily a person's race. How do you hope this research will help impact future clinical reporting with regards to race? I hope that um, future clinicians actually do holistic interviews asking people about all the exposures that they're um, encountering, smoke exposure, lifetime smoke exposure, occupational hazards, and and don't just automatically adjust for race in their spirometry readings or in any measurement or clinical diagnosis that uses race. This is not a situation actually specific to lung capacity, but it's common across many medical diagnoses. Um, there's differences in the way kidney function is uh, estimated by race. There's differences in in estimates for risk of vaginal birth after C-section. Many different diseases have risk calculators with race built into them. And I hope that we actually do closer examinations of what's driving these racial differences before we continue using these race adjustments because we don't know what's causing racial differences or if they're even real. I've been speaking with Dr. Amy Nan and Dr. Atul Mahaltra of UCSD Health. Thank you both. Thank you. Thank you. San Diego County Supervisors have ordered an independent review of the COVID-19 hotel sheltering program. The program, which is nearly a year old, provides shelter to people who need to isolate because of exposure to COVID or who are homeless. A company hired to solve earlier allegations of mismanagement at the Crown Plaza Isolation Hotel in Mission Valley is now facing allegations of mismanagement itself, reports of inadequate care, untrained staff, hostile security guards, and frequent police calls surfaced in an iNewsource investigative report late last month. Joining me with more is iNewsource investigative reporter Cody Delaney. Cody, welcome. Thanks for having me. How many hotels are part of this program and about how many people do they house? Yeah, the county won't say how many hotels are involved or, or where they are even, only that, the, that it has secured 640 rooms for the program. Um, at the Crown Plaza, there were close to 300 people staying there late last month. And these rooms are used for temporary housing for two kinds of people those who have come in contact with the coronavirus and those who are, who are at risk for developing severe illness if they do come in contact. And county health officials, they direct people to these rooms for isolation if they have nowhere else to go. 
So that could be first responders who need to isolate away from family members uh, or people who are going through immigration. Uh, but we're hearing the vast majority of people staying in these rooms are homeless people. An initial report by a news source on the Crown Plaza found that people, sometimes in mental or emotional distress, were not getting the care they needed. Can you remind us about that situation? Yeah. After the county started acquiring these hotels last March, county employees quickly became overwhelmed as they tried to manage. Uh, we obtained some emails from an employee saying she was begging and pleading for additional services. So they knew they weren't providing the mental health support and case management that these folks needed. And a few weeks later, staff found a man had died in his room by suicide. Five days had actually passed before his body was discovered. And staff members there had told us that there had been other suicide attempts there as well. So the county brought in a new management company. Tell us what is Equus Workforce Solutions supposed to be doing and how much is the county paying them? Yeah, Equus is responsible for providing guests with basic necessities, right? Such as three meals a day, laundry services, on-site security, and and providing people with their medications. And it relies on several subcontractors to get that job done. Um, The county's contract with Equus runs through the end of this year and will cost $30 million. Another company called Telecare is responsible for, for providing mental health services to the hotels. And the county changed an existing $13 million contract it had with that company to get that done. Now, in your most recent report, you spoke to a couple of people who have worked for Equus at the Crown Plaza and a former resident of the hotel. What kind of conditions did they tell you about? Yeah, it's, it's certainly a challenging situation to be in regardless of who you talk to. Um, For employees, they're doing what they can, but they know it's not enough. You know, they say guests weren't receiving medication on time. Toddlers were going days without appropriate food. And they flat out told us that they're not trained to deal with most of the situations that they encounter, you know, especially when it comes to mental health episodes. And for guests at the Crown Plaza, it's, you know, it's not like they're there for vacation. They're, they're staying there under a public health order because they've come in contact with the coronavirus. And they told us from the moment they arrived, there is absolutely no empathy or compassion. They're treated like a burden from staff and, and harassed by security guards. Uh, one man we interviewed for the story said an issue about his service dog escalated to a security guard attempting to hit him with a chair. So was the iNewsource report the basis for this new county investigation into the hotel sheltering program? Yeah, I'm, I'm still waiting for confirmation on that. But, but here's what I can say. The, the county's order came eight days after our reporting on this situation. And when board chair Nathan Fletcher called for the independent review, he said it was, quote, in response to some of the concerns around what we're doing on hotels, end quote. So when is the investigation supposed to begin? So county staff was directed to return back to the board with a report on this review within 90 days. So sometime, anytime between now and 90 days, we'll have a better understanding of, of what's going on. And Cody, what, if anything, is the long-term plan for these sheltering hotels? Are they supposed to continue being a housing resource for homeless people even after the pandemic? Yeah, there, I mean, there's a lot of a lot more reporting to do on the situation. And that's certainly a question I have. Um, the, like I said, the county's contract with Equus expires at the end of this year. 
Um, but we might have a better understanding on the future of this program when county staff returns with that report uh, within the next 90 days. Um, because we don't, we don't, we still don't know what's going to come out of that report and, and what the staff will say about it. Okay, then I've been speaking with iNewsource investigative reporter Cody Delaney. Cody, thank you very much. Thank you so much. Leaders at West Point will allow most of the students involved in a major cheating scandal to remain at the military academy. Late last year, 73 cadets were accused of collaborating on a virtual calculus exam. The scandal is raising questions about honor among the men and women who will become the Army's future leaders. Desiree Diorio reports for the American Homefront Project. More than 50 of the accused cadets admitted they cheated, but almost all of them will get a second chance. West Point enrolled them in a special program designed to rehabilitate students who violate the honor code. Shortly after the scandal became public last year, four cadets resigned from the academy. Another eight could face tougher discipline. West Point Superintendent Darrell Williams addressed the scandal at a congressional hearing this month. He defended the academy's decision to allow most of the cadets to stay. There is no excuse for violating United States Military Academy Honor Code, and I have all the tools I need to hold them accountable for that, and we will. Those tools, like the rehabilitation program, came about the last time a large cheating scandal rocked the academy, 1976. Back then, the accused cheaters were kicked out, and the Army established a special commission to investigate. Craig Bruce Smith teaches military history at the Army School of Advanced Military Studies. He says the aftermath of 1976 is when West Point began to reassess what honor and the honor code really mean. Honor was understood pretty widely throughout society in the 18th into the 19th century, but it's very much faded from public discourse, public discussion in the 20th, 21st century. So how honor ha the honor code has been administered has changed greatly. Smith, speaking personally and not on behalf of the Army, says the Academy began to allow more discretion in punishing honor code violations after the 1976 scandal. So rather than a black and white, if you have broken this, you are removed, that there should be an ability to assess the situation, the circumstances, and to have a response that is not all or nothing. That's been the trend throughout higher education. At non-military colleges, rehabilitation approaches, like the kind at West Point, are much more common than outright dismissal when it comes to academic dishonesty. David Rettinger is the former head of the International Center for Academic Integrity. Expulsion flies in the face of everything we understand about the psychology of ethical and moral behavior. That's partly because the section of the brain that makes you feel icky when you do something wrong isn't fully developed until around age 23 to 26, after college is over. Rettinger says rehabilitation seems in line with West Point's mission to instill the values of duty, honor, and country. That doesn't necessarily mean weeding people out who are imperfect because we're all imperfect. That means taking the best cadets we can and turning them into the best officers they can be, which means teaching them. And if there's no opportunity for redemption, what are we really teaching them? 
But Congresswoman Jackie Speer of California, who chairs the Military Personnel Subcommittee, says cadets accepted into elite military academies should be held to a higher standard. I want to see accountability that I frankly am very disappointed does not exist in the academies right now. When you have, you know, etched in the marble at West Point, a cadet will not lie, cheat, steal, or tolerate those who do. That should be crystal clear. West Point leaders called the cheating extremely disappointing. But speaking to the Congressional Committee, Superintendent Williams also noted the cadets faced an unusual situation during the pandemic. Our young men and women were in a remote learning environment. Some were challenged uh, in terms of home life at home. Uh, They were away from their coaches, their teachers, and the structures that provide the way ahead. Williams promised that the cadets will learn from this experience. I'm Desiree DiOrio on Long Island. This story was produced by the American Homefront Project, a public media collaboration that reports on American military life and veterans. Funding comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Heineman. The San Diego Latino Film Festival kicks off tomorrow with films on two screens at the South Bay Drive-In, but the majority of films will be presented online. KPBS arts reporter Beth Accomando speaks with exhibitions manager Moises Esparza about programming the festival, and he shares his top picks. Moises, a year ago when I spoke to you, the festival was on its opening night and had to cancel because of COVID. Now it appears that the festival is kind of more at the tail end of the pandemic. So what has this experience been like for you as someone programming the festival? Canceling the festival and its launch date last year was a bit traumatic, (laughs) to say the least, now in retrospect. And kind of in the chaos of putting a stop to everything, it was hard for me to contextualize just how emotionally deprived I felt from not being able to launch a physical edition of the film festival. We ended up launching a virtual edition in September, which was in a way a great trial run for this new edition of the festival, which is also mostly virtual. But, you know, it's, it's a challenge. I think that film viewing is a communal activity. I think it deserves to be seen with friends, family, or with strangers in a movie theater. So we're still getting used to this virtual realm. With that being said, I think what's important is that we as a festival stay true to our mission and continue championing Latinx cinema from all over the world, regardless of the exhibition platform, whether it's in theater or virtual. It's it's weird. I f- we got canceled right or postponed, I should say, right at the beginning of the pandemic. And now that we're doing this edition a year later, I almost see the light at the end of the tunnel with things relaxing and easing. So I feel like if our festival is maybe two months from now, we might have been able to be back in theaters. Well, another thing that impacts your festival more so than I think other festivals in San Diego is the festival, the in-person festival attracted 
a crowd from south of the border, from Mexico, from Baja. And with a virtual festival, you are faced with what the distributors call geo-restrictions, where you're not allowed to have people from outside of a certain geographical region purchase your film. So how has that impacted you in terms of the audience you can serve? We are, in a way, a binational film festival because we're so close to the border. So there are some films that our audience in Tijuana will not have access to because of these geoblock restrictions. Prior to this virtual edition, we had individuals who would cross the border every day to watch films. And they would come from even further south than TJ sometimes. And it was just so impressive to see their commitment to, to, to attending the festival and watching these films. So in a way, I think that these, while I understand the necessity of these geo-blocking, I do think for such a regional festival, it's kind of a hindrance to us um, in terms of access to our films and potential revenue streams. And so, yeah, this, this geo-blocking is, is a challenge Let's talk about the programming a bit. I know that sometimes when you're programming films, the process of selecting them is when themes or trends seem to appear. And I'm wondering if during this pandemic year and looking at the films, if anything kind of seemed to be a trend or a theme that came up. You know, it's really fascinating. And I think I could talk for hours about this topic is what I saw through a lot of the submissions is this reckoning with the topic of colonialism. A lot of the films I saw were this reckoning with how colonialism has bred violence that still exists to this day. And I think that's a really important thing to take notice of as, as a programmer. The fact that this discourse seems to be happening amongst Latinx filmmakers, this idea that the trauma of generations past gets passed down and it's, it, it's up to us to reckon with it. Are there any films you'd like to highlight for people who are looking to attend the festival? At our festival, we try to program with different themes in mind. So there's films about the immigrant experience. There's films about the LGBTQ experience. Really just trying to champion as many different perspectives on what it means to be Latinx. And I think that some of the films that I can recommend the most deal with what I discussed earlier regarding this reckoning of the idea of the violence that colonialism has created. One of them is a documentary called 499 by Rodrigo Reyes, who is a master documentarian. He is just so skilled at at creating documentaries. And this one is really form-breaking and astonishing in the way it tells its story. It explores the idea that colonialism has directly affected the violence in Mexico that's occurring in modern times. So he frames it within this context of a conquistador arriving on the shores of Mexico in modern time. One of the other films that deal with this reckoning of colonialism is a narrative film called Blanco en Blanco, directed by the Ocor with Alfredo Castro, who's one of the greatest actors working today. And what's really striking about this film is how it portrays how history is captured and how the way that history is captured is the way we interpret it as actually happening. I would say 
Macbeth at Blanco Blanco is one of the more provocative offerings the festival has to offer, but I encourage audience members to, to take a chance on it because the reason to attend a festival in person or virtually is to watch films you would not typically watch and to watch challenging films and subject matters that are sensitive. It's part of the festival experience to expand horizons, to become a more <laughs> learned film goer. So Blanco and Blanco definitely gives audience members the opportunity to kind of embark on a truly film festival-esque journey, I would say. One of the things that's always key about your festival is discussions. So there will be a virtual discussion component to the festival again, correct? Absolutely. We are scheduling virtual Q&As for many of our films. They'll start immediately after the posted duration of the film. But if you're not able to watch it live, you can tune in afterwards. So they'll be available on our social media uh, channels. But I encourage film goers to watch these live because that's when you get to type out questions for the filmmakers. And we're trying to create a little bit of the festival in-person magic in this virtual space. But something that's awesome is that I've gotten to speak with more filmmakers than ever. It, it, it's amazing and awesome for me. So the discussions are my favorite part of the festival when we were in person. And now that I get to talk with filmmakers from all over the world, I mean, it's just, it's almost maybe like as, as cheesy as it sounds, a dream come true for me. Well, I want to thank you very much for talking about the Latino Film Festival. And as always, I look forward to it. Thank you so much, Beth. That was Beth Acomando speaking with Moises Esparza. The San Diego Latino Film Festival begins tomorrow night and runs through March 21st, both online and at two outdoor venues. KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu.